0: Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is a partnership between the Department of Criminal Justice and the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Department of Criminal Justice. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics related to government. Some may be surprising and some may not. So please enjoy. Welcome to episode 30 of the Let's Talk Government podcast, Southern Politics and Racial and Ethnic Politics. We do want to thank one of our listeners for sending in the suggestion to talk about the elections in Georgia last year that led to this podcast. I am joined by Dr. Kevin Parsnow and Dr. Fred Slocum from the Political Science Program in the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato. So let's kind of start with a a broader view of Southern politics and racial and ethnic politics, and maybe even just talk about the process of elections in some of the Southern states. Um, I know we talked about majority and plural elections. So Dr. Slocum, do you want to kind of talk about the process there?
1: Sure. Um, Most states around the country use a plurality election system, often called SMSP, Single Member Simple Plurality which means that, and and Minnesota is one of those states that uses that, Um, and in that, uh, in SMSP systems, the winner of the most votes is elected to a seat. End of story. Um, I mean, that was the case in Minnesota governor's race, for example, in 1998, when Jesse Ventura won the governor's race with only 37% of the vote in a three-candidate race. Um, And most Southern states use that system. However, Georgia does not. Uh, Georgia has what's called a majority runoff electoral system in which, uh, whether for state or federal office, the candidate that um, wins the most votes is not guaranteed election um, unless that candidate also wins a majority of all the votes cast. So in Georgia, what's required is a majority rather than a plurality, The winning the most votes a majority is at least one vote, more than 50% of all the votes cast. Um, and if, a, if no candidate wins a majority in Georgia, uh, the race will be forced into a runoff between the two top finishers. Um, and then the winner of that race, with, with only two candidates in the race, and the winner of that race is, uh, will have a majority of the votes and is therefore elected. And that, that is why Georgia had a two-stage election process in uh, 2020 uh, for the U.S. Senate seats there. Um, the, uh, the the Republican incumbent senators, uh, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, uh, were the leaders in the vote, vote totals after the 2020 election. However, they were both short of a majority of all the votes cast. And so they had to defend their seats in a runoff, which was held on January 5th of this year. And the, uh, to a lot of analysts' surprise, including my own, my own surprise, uh, the Democratic challengers to them, uh, John Ossoff and uh, Raphael Warnock, uh, defeated the Republican incumbents um, and thereby claimed those Senate seats in the runoff elections that were necessitated by virtue of the Republican incumbents winning a plurality but short of a majority of all the votes cast in November.
0: Well, we are going to come back to the Georgia elections because it is really fascinating. So, but before we do that, Fred, is Georgia the only one that has the majority vote system in the Southern region?
1: No, Louisiana does as well. Okay. To my knowledge, they are the only states that do. Okay.
0: So when we think about Southern politics, we kind of have to come to mind of racial politics, you know, white and black and white voters and black voters. But is there more to that makeup in racial and ethnic politics in the South than just the white voters and black voters?
1: There is to an increasing extent, uh, particularly in the states along the Atlantic seaboard, uh, from Virginia down to Georgia. So, Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia are, um, you know, all of them have substantial black populations. um, And they also are. Uh, generally, growing states. South Carolina a little bit less than the others, uh, but they're generally growing at a faster clip than the rest of the South is. And furthermore, the white voters in those states, uh, with the exception of South Carolina, tend to be a little bit less conservative, more willing to support Democrats in elections uh, than in South Carolina and the states further to the interior in the South, like Arkansas and Tennessee, uh, where uh, generally speaking, voter polar uh, racial polarization and voting is less. Uh, In Virginia, North Carolina and Georgia than it is in the interior than in South Carolina and the interior states of the South, Um, the the Mid-South region like Arkansas, Tennessee, um, Oklahoma and uh, Mississippi, white voter white tendency to vote Republican is very, very high in those states, but less so along the Atlantic seaboard.
0: Well, before we start talking about some campaign strategies, I'm going to turn to Dr. Parsnow. Have there been any changes in court rulings or laws about voter voting rights and districting that would be impacting the different voting mechanisms in the South?
2: Well, probably, probably the biggest one was the decision in 2013 um, over the uh, in Shelby v. Holder when the Supreme Court weighed in. There were provisions in the 1965 Voting Rights Act where states and local governments who had a history of segregation and discrimination against black voters um, had to, uh, whenever they were gonna change their voting laws, they had to get pre-clearance from the Department of Justice and demonstrate that the laws they were passing wouldn't have a, a disparate effect. In other words, wouldn't affect black voters more than white voters because they kind of established that they had you know, poll taxes, literacy tests, all these kinds of things that were designed to reduce the ability of African-Americans to, to go out and vote. So there was this rule in place since 1964 and then later in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And those were thrown out in 2013 as argued by uh, the Chief Justice John Roberts said, look, it's been like 50 years, America has changed. It's unfair to make these counties and states continue to go through this proxy, rather, this practice. Um, Famously, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, a liberal member of the court who opposed the decision, argued that uh, getting rid of these voting rights protections for African-Americans in these places in the South um, was like, throwing away your umbrella because you're not getting wet anymore. So she argued that they needed to continue to be in place. Um, That's probably the biggest uh, change uh, in that the Supreme Court um, invalidated part of the Voting Rights Act and said it's no longer necessary. And many people argue still that those protections are still necessary. There's still some tendency in some of these places to try to reduce voter turnout by African-Americans.
0: Well, as we keep talking about ethnic politics, um, there is another case that just came up recently. I know Arizona is not considered a Southern state, but Dr. Parsno, would you be able to talk a little bit about the case of the attorney general of Arizona versus the Democratic National Committee that just happened this last year and that impact on ethnic politics?
2: Yeah, that that was a recent case. It almost carried off where the Shelby v. Holder decision came from in that um, there was a ruling where Arizona, like if somebody voted in the wrong precinct, right, they might be in the same, the right county or the right, obviously the right state of Arizona, if they voted in the wrong precinct, um, their whole ballot would be invalidated, even though clearly if they're in Arizona, they should count them for governor, statewide offices, the presidential election. But the um, secretary of state of Arizona said, nope, you're entirely invalidated. And uh A group of uh, indigenous uh, Americans, I I believe it was from the Navajo tribe, um, argued, look, given the way that there are addresses among many uh, Navajo, it's hard to know what precinct there is. People sometimes go to different precincts, the wrong one. Also noting that precincts in some of these areas where you vote gets changed a lot more than it does say in a rich suburb. And so they argued, having this rule is unfair, right? Maybe the person voted for the wrong state legislator, but they voted in the governor's race, they voted in the presidential race, they voted in wherever, you should at least count those. Throw out the ones that they're voting in the wrong place that it affects, and but count the other ones. And the Supreme Court in a six to three decision, the six, uh, what we call conservative members of the court against the three liberal members of the court said no, uh, the, the ruling was perfectly fair. We're upholding that ruling. And it does not matter that the law has a disparate effect between whites and minorities. It's still constitutional because they said, we don't know that that was the intent of the law. So that was a situation where um, the court weighed right in and, and, I mean, further got rid of the language of the 1965 Voting Rights Act and said, even if it has a racial effect, if that's not the intent, you can do it. And I think a lot of people are concerned that further efforts to reduce minority vote and or make it harder for minorities to vote um, or throw out ballots are sort of empowered by this decision by the Supreme Court. And the fact that it's six to three suggests that this might be the trend of the Supreme Court for quite some time, because quite a few members of that six
0: are Not very old. They'll probably be on the court for another 30 years. So it's always interesting when you hear about what the Supreme Court does, but we also know that there are some states that are passing more restrictive voting rights laws. So I'll I'll turn it over to whoever wants to talk about it. How does those restrictions on voting rights laws and requirements impact voter turnout? And then how do you see that voter turnout changing in the southern states as related to like Georgia?
1: Well, the, uh, the argument made by many civil rights activists is that um, more restrictive voting laws are um, have the effect of and are, dis- and are intended to uh, disproportionately um, discourage voting among people of color. Um, and uh, past research has shown that, um, and, and past incidents have shown that practices like uh, moving polling places out of uh heavily minority neighborhoods uh or um or stationing election observers uh in polling places uh where the where those coming in to vote are predominantly people of color um have that impact there was a federal consent decree from New Jersey in 1982 i believe where uh New Jersey Republicans uh were ordered to, were required to stop Posting observers uh, in polling places in heavily minority neighborhoods in places like Newark. Um, uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of concern among civil rights activists that the um, intent of more restrictive voting laws is to um, uh, that that the underlying intent is to crack down on minority voting and and to engineer an electorate that is more, that has a higher percentage of white voters. Yeah,
2: I should I should point out here that in that. Um, Brinovich v. DNC case that I was just talking about. Uh, I don't remember which member of the Supreme Court um, asked the, uh, the 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 Republican the party the Republican Party of Arizona's uh, lawyer who was there answering questions about the case. They they asked him what was the interest of the Republican Party in passing this law, and he argued that the law. He said something along the lines of. It puts us at a competitive uh, disadvantage to not have that law. So he openly expressed the idea that that would advantage his party as an argument that the court should side with
1: him. Mm -hmm.
0: So, oh, go ahead, Fred.
1: And I mean, and uh, along the lines of voter ID laws as well. You know, voter ID laws. <clears throat> one voter ID law, that of Indiana, was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2008. Um, however, that doesn't uphold all voter ID laws. But on en route to that uh, Supreme Court ruling, that case was heard in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and a uh, conservative federal judge who sat on that circuit court named Richard Posner um, had uh, ruled in favor of, of, allow, of allowing the Indiana voter ID law to stand on, while on the court. But he later, um, in one of his legal writings, he's a known legal scholar, reversed himself saying that, uh, that, uh, that the primary purpose of voter ID laws was to discourage or put a damper on minority voting. Um, the... Um, But uh, as Kevin said, the Supreme Court has required uh, demonstration of intent to discriminate uh, rather than simply disparate impact uh, in terms of the impact of voting laws on uh, people of color.
0: Well, and this Uh, seems to also empower the secretary of state because that becomes a much more powerful position because they run usually are the overseer of elections in each of the states. So it mm -hmm. seems to give them a lot more power than most people even realize. Yeah,
2: instead of, there, there is some concern that instead of having this under sort of the power of sort of objective, nonpartisan, local officials that are just counting ballots, right? Literally, like like John Roberts describes, calling balls and strikes, not trying to influence the outcome, taking it out of their hands and then putting it in the hands of um, officials that are um, partisan elected officials. Uh, Whether that would be um, attorney general, secretary of state, or putting it into the hands of the state legislature. That's one of the concerns that there's been changes in state laws that regardless of how the outcome comes, the state legislature can come in and say, well, we're we're sending our presidential electors um, a different slate, right? They can say, well, we think somebody else won, so we're sending it other than what the nonpartisan Objective people, so there's a lot of concern that this is getting moved from just people kind of counting ballot ballots to being allowing more uh, partisan decisions over how ballots are counted. So, in addition to reducing uh, voting, um, I don't know if you're if, if this is the best place to mention it, but um, there are a variety of other like sort of laws. I think uh, Fred talked about a few of them that are sort of in reaction to the large voter turnout of 2020, um, different states have reduced the number of ballot boxes, particularly in areas where minorities live. Um, they've reduced the time frame people have for early voting. So like if you're absentee voting or just no excuse early voting, you wanna send in by mail or drop it off instead of be there on election day, they've shrunk the timeframe, making it harder to do. Um, adding additional voter ID requirements. Um, and then of course, there was the famous one in Georgia, where they said that outside groups would not be allowed, right? There are sometimes these long lines to vote, particularly in places where African-Americans vote and that you would not be allowed to hand them food and water under the idea that, that people would hand them water trying to influence their vote. It was like, well, they're, they're also standing outside for, you know, a couple of hours at a time, uh, a person needs maybe a drink of water, right? So that was really controversial. And it's particularly controversial because some of these groups have uh, a a very popular way for um, African-Americans to vote in a lot of these areas is what's called souls to the polls, where as a church, right? It's a, there tends to be like, as a church, To get sort of organizing for all these black churches to get people to go vote early, go vote together, go do drop boxes on a Sunday as opposed to like normal election day. And a lot of these laws are seen as ways to make it harder to do the souls to the polls.
0: Well, that's interesting. Mm. I'd never heard of the souls to the polls. So, um, so let's talk about what are some of the differing campaign strategies of the Democrats and Republicans in the Southern politics.
1: Hi. Um, yes, <coughs> um, the the strategies for the Democratic and Republican parties are very different in the South. Um, the The South has historically been home to a large amount of. Uh, racial polarization in voting. Uh, And so that kind of dictates different campaign strategies for the parties. For Democrats, uh, the primary strategy is twofold. First off, to mobilize uh, large numbers of votes uh, of people of color, especially black uh, people and African-Americans especially, because their votes tend to go lopsidedly to Democrats, um, typically 85 or more percent. of black votes that are cast go to Democrats in Southern races, um, sometimes over 90%. Um, and uh, meanwhile, however, Democrats have to be careful to, uh, to avoid losing too much ground among white voters. Um, in, in a state where racial polarization is very high, like Mississippi, uh, perhaps the most racially polarized state, the overall population is about 37% black um, mostly African-American, uh, the white population amounts to about 60 or to 60, 60%. Um, um, but no Democrat really has a snowball's chance in a very hot place in Mississippi, because the white vote typically breaks 80 or more percent Republican. Um, and, uh, so it doesn't matter how many votes black, uh, you know, Democrats can generate from the black community. They're bound to lose on a statewide basis. Um, on the other hand, in a state like North Carolina, um <clears throat> the white vote does not break so lopsidedly Republican um as in Mississippi. And uh in North Carolina, a candidate can win with a biracial or multiracial, stra- a democratic candidate can win with a biracial or multiracial strategy by mobilizing the black vote um and to a lesser extent the Latino or Asian vote, which also tends to lean democratic. Um while still winning a respectable share of the white vote. Um, If uh, generally speaking, if the Democrats can get 40% or more of the white vote, they are doing well. Um, If the Democrats are held to 25% or less of the white vote, uh, they are likely to lose. Um, For Republicans, the the reverse is true. Uh, Republicans want to run up uh, large white majorities or large majorities among the white vote um, and in the process, they typically ignore and often seek to actively suppress the black vote or, or votes of people of color. Um, so for the Republicans, the, the, road to, the road to victory is the rule of white majorities. For Democrats, the, the route to victory is the uh, rule of biracial and multiracial coalitions.
0: So you you definitely have like a scientific method to figuring out what would be a majority and um, what would lean one way or the other. So what does your research tell you about how to increase that voter turnout? How could the parties increase that voter turnout? What can they do? Well, there's been
2: a lot of political science, obviously political scientists are interested in what, what causes people to vote or not. And um, one of the things that uh, there's two researchers, uh, Gerber and Green, who started this research. Well, I mean, they've been doing it for a while, but they really took off in the early 2000s, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, where they wanted to see like, does mail affect people, sending them mail, phone calling them, uh, canvassing door to door, what actually does the best job, dollar for dollar, of turning people out? And what they found was it's really difficult to have much effect with mail. Or even phone calls, not to say that those are completely worthless. Um, And granted, these are political scientists, so they can't, so their message has to be something along the lines of be a good citizen and go vote, as opposed to go vote for Bob Smith. You know, he's gonna lower your taxes or he's gonna save the environment or whatever, right? There's no, it's difficult as political scientists to exactly replicate it. But still, it was there. Most of the findings were that going door to door was the main way to influence people and get them to actually vote. That was the one way to to demonstrate statistically significant increases in votes. A lot of the follow-up research in the past two decades on this has uh, really focused on the importance for candidates and parties to have a personal relationship with the voter. Obviously, if you're running for Senate, you can't know every voter, but having somebody who actually talks to them in person and lets them vent frustration or ask them, well, why wouldn't you you vote for my candidate? Something that gives a personal connection dramatically increases the likelihood that somebody who wasn't going to vote will vote. Um, And another thing that's been found in research is um, just doing this one time is not quite enough. Like if I show up as a candidate, and believe me, I'm not ever running for office. Um, If I was to show up as a candidate, and say, hey, will you vote for me in November? And then I disappear until two or four years later or six years later to ask for your vote again, people will say, where were you? You got my vote, but you didn't wanna talk to me otherwise. So there really is like building a relationship with voters and a sense that you're there for them. Uh, Gerber and Green and a lot of other political scientists have found that it's this relational thing that's super important, even more important than necessarily agreeing with people on the issues. That 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 it's like if people really strongly it's if it's the issues that matter to them, you're not going to persuade them to change their mind on issues, but you can persuade them that you're a good person who will listen to them.
0: So before we we're going to come back to Georgia in just a moment, but um, I'd like to just spend a minute or two talking about the current uh, governor race in Virginia. It's really tight between the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate? And what do you guys see? Is that going to be an influential race? Does it tell us anything about what to expect in the upcoming year or two?
1: That's hard to say, although it's commonly perceived uh, as a bellwether. Uh, Virginia um, uh, has off-year elections uh, cycle for statewide elections. so um, And so um, there's often a tendency among uh, those analyzing or observing politics to view that as a bellwether. Um, I think it's uh, uh, to the extent that elections are nationalized, um, I think it can is more likely to be a bellwether of what can occur in 2022. However, every state is different. Uh, Virginia's politics are uh, commonly subdivided between uh, Northern Virginia uh, and the rest of the state. Um, that that's, division is a little bit simplistic, but Northern Virginia is where Democrats draw most of their support uh, due to the large uh, populations of, uh, Amer- of uh, residents with more education, uh, including many federal government employees in places like Arlington and Reston and the other suburbs and exurbs of the Washington DC area. Um, Republicans tend to draw their support from southern and western Virginia, especially the rural parts of the state, uh, in places like Danville in the south uh, and the mountain regions in the west, like Lynchburg. Um, and then the suburbs are, you know, of Richmond and, and Norfolk are real battlegrounds uh, between the two parties in most elections. So. Um, uh, d- but uh, generally, uh, Virginia was once, uh, you know, kind of a lock for Republicans in presidential and most statewide races into the 90s. And now the state is much more closely divided. However, um, the Democrats have won four out of the last five governor's races and have won most of the statewide executive offices since 2001, um, uh, which shows uh, a shift. And generally, the growing parts of the state have been in the northern parts near Washington, D.C., where the Democrats tend to run strongest uh, and the, the uh, more rural areas of the state are steady in population or shrinking. And so the overall demographic trends with the diversification in the North um, and the large number of federal workers and, uh, um, and highly educated professionals tend to bode well for Democrats over the long term in the state.
2: Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, there's another issue here. besides the fact that just generally speaking, if you just had a generic Republican and generic Democrat running in Virginia. 10 years ago, you would have thought that the, the Republican would probably win. Now you'd think that just probably a slight margin for the Democrat. Um, and Terry McAuliffe who's running as the Democrat has already been governor once. So he's got good name recognition. I don't know exactly how um, Virginians perceived his time as governor, but you know he's got good name recognition and they've nominated him again. I think the Republicans, when they they uh, nominated Youngkin, they probably were shooting for somebody who's more of a moderate, which is a, in a way recognizing that Virginia is shifting. Um, you can argue whether Youngkin is a moderate or not. Um, he certainly tried to distance himself from Donald Trump, while Virginia Republicans, <laughs> to some degree, other Virginia Republicans have sort of embraced Donald Trump. So there is a level where maybe this isn't so much even about national trends as just is Donald Trump still an influential aspect? Is it going to turn out? Is his sort of like, is he going to turn out uh, Republican voters in Virginia? Um, right now, McAuliffe has a pretty consistent three or four point lead in the polls, um, but it's an off year election. So, you know, everybody's got to turn out their people that I'm pretty sure the Democrats are trying to say, here's just another Trump, you know, if you're a Democrat, you better get to the polls um, while the Republicans have got kind of a mixed message of, no, no, he's a not, not Trump, he's a good moderate or, you know, just a kind of conservative guy that you wanna vote for, but still pull in those Virginia Trump voters. Um, I, I kind of agree with Fred. I don't know that this is a, gonna be a great measure of national trends because Virginia is, I mean, one thing we find in political science, right? The South is different from the Northeast is different from the Midwest is different from the West and so forth. But almost every state is really different from other states. And everybody seems to know that for their own state, but they don't seem to realize like, you know, as a, as a Montana, I would have said, Minnesota, Wisconsin, eh, what's the difference? They're both a bunch of corn and flat, right? <laughs> but now that I've lived here, I realized how different Minnesota is from Wisconsin and Minnesotans definitely know like, the Twin Cities is different from Southern Minnesota. is different from the Iron Range. You know, we know that in here. It's the same thing in every state you go to. And so, I I don't know how much Virginia gets attention because it's like the only movie playing in the theater. So might as well go watch
1: it. Most, yeah, New Jersey too, but New Jersey's not getting a lot of it. It has the governor's race too this fall, but um, but New Jersey's race is not really up for grabs the way Virginia's is right now.
0: So this is a good segue to come back to Georgia for kind of your final ideas and thoughts. Um, So we had the runoff. So between the November 2020 elections and the runoff in January 2021, You had voices talking about invalidating the elections. You have rumors of Trump calling the Secretary of State in Georgia to um, influence how they were gonna call the vote and do the runoffs. Uh, You have Stacey Abrams, that's a big advocate in Georgia who they claim helped get Biden elected. How does this all come together and why why did we pay so much attention to the Georgia runoff um, votes and elections for the Senate seats?
1: Well, because first and foremost, because that George, those Georgia races on January 5th, the runoff races, decided the makeup of the Senate. Um, and it was the case that the Democrats had to win both of those seats in order to gain a marginal majority in the Senate with their holding the vice presidency to break tie votes. Um, um, had Republicans won either of those two Senate races in Georgia, uh, Mitch McConnell would, would again be Senate Majority Leader. Um, and... Um, and, uh, Biden's agenda probably would be dead in the water. Um, so, um, and, uh, so, uh, the, it was consequential that Democrats won both of those races, lifting them to 50 votes in the Senate with, uh, and with vice president Kamala Harris able to break ties, Democrats gained a nominal majority in the chamber. So it helped cement unified democratic control in Congress, albeit by very mar- narrow margin in both chambers.
2: Yeah, and Fred is entirely right about the immediate effect of that, the difference between a Biden administration. As much as people are talking right now about um, Joe Manchin and, and Kristen Sinema, that would be irrelevant to Democrats or passing Joe or Biden's policies if either of those two seats in Georgia had gone differently. Um, so I think in the short term, if, to, to an extent that two or four years is a short term, um, it's that But in the long-term, I think there's a big idea that like, wow, uh, Georgia, two Democratic senators, um, that something had changed in the South, right? Because we have these maps of the US elections and they almost all look the same from Clinton on through to 2016. In 2016, there's a change which winds up with Trump winning. Now you see Georgia that's been consistently Republican going for Biden at the presidential level and two Democratic senators. And people say, is this a new politics? Are we moving into a new era? And for that, you mentioned Stacey Abrams. Um, a lot of this has been credited to her. And I think fair enough, she she lost uh, 2018 uh, a gubernatorial election. Uh, make the short story of it, she was running against Brian Kemp, who at the time was the Secretary of State of Georgia, with a lot of sway over who gets to vote and who doesn't. And he was really strict about some voting laws and threw out something like 700,000 ballots, um, or not ballots, but registrations saying, oh, we're cleaning up the voting laws, voting uh, rolls. And it turns out that those were disproportionately African Americans. Stacey Abrams is African American and she's a Democrat. So when she lost by like 50,000 votes, people said, Kemp used his power as Secretary of State to to take the election away from her. She did concede, right? So she she said, I concede, but what I'm going to do is work on voter turnout. And so a lot of other places are saying, a lot of other places that want to see high voter turnout, whether you're Republicans or Democrats, um, kind of look to that and say, well, how did that happen? How did she increase voter turnout? And if you look at voter turnout for Georgia, um, Georgia ran consistently behind national averages. It's like a lot of southern states with low voter turnout, and as we, especially if you go back to the you know 80s, 90s, but as we got closer to the 2000s, um, they started to get closer and closer to the national average, and then in both 2018 and 2020, they actually exceeded it. Now Minnesotans, we in this state, well, listen let me say we in um, Minnesota always exceeds the national average. But to have a southern state do that is quite a thing. And the fact that it happened when Stacey Abrams was running for governor, and then when she did her big push afterwards to increase voter turnout, is sort of this idea that 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 her work is her work worked, and that that might be a key. Um, I don't know that you can replicate that everywhere. Part of what you have in Georgia is a changing demographics, right? Increasing proportion of the population is African-American, including a lot of African-Americans who are moving into Georgia. Um, So that was a group that she could reach out to. You don't necessarily have that in every single state. Um, And then uh, just different regions of Georgia are more diverse. So the diversity gives her group, uh, a population that may not have as high voter turnout rates that she can actually target. So like if somebody was to try to do something like this in Minnesota, um, it's a bit tougher because there's not as many groups. There's not like an automatic group like, sure, college students don't vote in as high a number, but Minnesota college students vote in pretty high numbers. So you don't have a sort of automatic pool to go to to boost up their voting rates and turn people out. Anyway,
1: sorry, that was that was me sidetracking to, to that issue. Um, um, so I think my phone's about to run out of power, but uh, quickly, Georgia um, I think is a model for mobilizing uh, people of color uh, to vote. Uh, Stacey Abrams came unexpectedly close, um, although falling short in the governor's race in 2018 in Georgia and then uh, decided to make a continuing project of voter mobilization. And especially African American voter mobilization, but Abrams' project also included uh, the, uh, you know, reflected the reality that Georgia also was seeing increased uh, shares of Asian Americans and Hispanics in the state electorate, um, and that most of those, uh, most of those more diverse populations are in the Greater Atlanta area. And what's striking about Georgia politics is how, in the 80s and 90s, the suburban counties of Atlanta were solidly. conservative and very heavily white, and that is no longer the case in counties like Cobb and DeKalb and Gwinnett counties. Um, They're much more diverse populations, somewhat more socioeconomically diverse as well, Um, and the Democrats have expanded their urban base in the Atlanta area to now incorporate strength in much of the suburbs in order to offset the Republican strength in the rural areas of the state.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue into wrapping up with Fred's uh, phone getting ready to die. But thank you, Kevin and Fred. I love talking with you guys about this. I always learn something new, and it's interesting how influential the Southern politics can be on the entire United States. So, I think. I, I, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I just wanted. I to I have to a little ahead. bit of
1: battery power left. I have ten percent. So, okay. I'm. I, 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 I can. I could field another question yet. So. <laughs>
2: I was was just going to add one more thing before we go. Uh, A lot of what we've talked about, we've been talking about like voting and turnout patterns between Republicans and Democrats. But I think it's only fair to point out that if we go back in time, just a couple of decades, you would have seen that it was um, that it was Democrats, right? A lot of the Democrats were segregationists. And a lot of these things that came from the Voting Rights Act were you know, they were partisan because it was the Democrats that joined this. So this isn't necessarily like Democrats have always been good and Republicans have always been bad. It's 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 a, it's more complicated than that. Right. It now, is,
1: Yeah. But it was right now but, in Georgia. Yeah.
2: It's one way, but it didn't necessarily have to be that way.
1: Historically, it was Southern Democrats who opposed civil rights laws at the, in the at the federal level in the 60s. But Northern Democrats strongly favored them um, and in coalition with Northern Republicans. So, I mean, uh, in, in terms of passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So that was a bipartisan Northern coalition that um, ushered those, uh, that secured passage of those civil rights laws in Congress. Um, but what's happened since the 1960s is that the once numerous uh, contingent of Southern Democrats has shriveled To uh, uh, shriveled greatly. And uh, most Southern Democrats that were, uh, most seats that were once held by Southern Democrats are now uh, white Southern Democrats and and therefore white conservative Southern Democrats in the 60s and before. A majority of those seats are now held by white conservative Republicans on the one hand, or in the case of concentrated black majority districts, uh, black Democrats who generally are liberal in their voting behavior on the other. Um, and, you know, that's another topic beyond this uh, podcast, but the drawing of majority-minority districts has concentrated Black voters in ways that allow uh, um, Black members of Congress to be elected. Um, and almost all those members are Democrats um, and represent pretty safe districts. Um, but the, there has been a polarization by both race and party in Southern congressional delegations, Um but that, has, in terms of numbers, that has worked in Republicans' favor um, as many of the old Southern Democratic seats um, are now held by white conservative Republicans um, throughout the region. So in some states like Arkansas, there are no Democrats and and no uh, people of color in the congressional delegation. Uh, in other states like Mississippi, there is one black Democrat, but three white Republicans in the delegation. In Alabama, there's one black Democrat and uh, six white republicans in the congressional delegation. So you do see a market polarization both on race based on race and party combined.
0: That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> All right, well that's oh, actually Oops, sorry, I oh again. no! Big can of worms. You're right, Kevin. How many cans but, of uh, worms can you open up in the
2: last five minutes?
0: Yeah. Well, that's definitely a topic we need to talk about in the future. But we got to kind of wrap it up with time here. But thank you, gentlemen, for coming and talking about this. And we might have to pursue that can of worms that Fred just opened up in our last minute of the podcast. Okay. So thanks for enjoying for joining me today. And
1: thank, thank you, you for Dad. hosting us, Pat.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu/letstalkgov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday
1: for a new episode and thank you for listening.